General Hudson, thank you for inviting me. All you recce pukes, thank you for coming. <laughs> Tonight we're going to talk about reconnaissance in Southeast Asia. Basically, we're going to break it down in three different ways. We're going to talk about RF-101s, and because reconnaissance in Southeast Asia consisted of daytime low, that's RF-101s. It consisted of daytime high, that's going to be RF-4Cs. And it consisted of nighttime low, and that's going to be RF-4Cs. And we have a special treat for you on the nighttime low part. The guy who we're going to talk about, his mission we're going to talk about is here tonight, Larry Faley. And you'll meet him a little bit later in the evening. So, with that said, two things. One, if you would join me in turning off your cell phones, pagers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Also, if you have a question, we're going to have a question and answer session at the end. If you have a question, the time to ask it is when you have the question. I'll be happy to answer it. You're not going to interrupt me and get me doctor off my stride. It's okay. Ask the question. We'll answer it right then, okay? All right. Without further ado, let's move along. So alone and armed and afraid, I did write a book. This is a brief commercial message. <laughs> I did write a book. If you want to know more than you really ever wanted to know about Reconnaissance from our R4C standpoint in Southeast Asia, and all kinds of that kind of stuff, including well, there's there's pictures from parties at Udorn. There's girls, girls, girls. Yes, there are. Oh yeah, there are no faces you can recognize in any embarrassing places. There's an honor roll of people who didn't come back. On and on. So the, the web page is right there, alone, unarmed, and unafraid.com. Go there if you'd like to. Thank you for, the, for your attention to this brief commercial. Now, I did want to, we're going to mention one group, the butterflies. How many of you know who butterflies were? <laughs> Nobody knows. Okay, it's all right. Kind of a, yeah. All right. Butterflies, well, first let's start here. In northern, uh, southern Laos, just up above Vientiane, there was an airfield that built by the CIA. The name of it was Long Chen, L-O-N-G-T-I-E-N. -E Long Chen was a lot of concrete. When I, when I remember, never landed there, but when I used to see it, it and that was, I always had that at the place that I would land. If I got in trouble and got all kinds of, you know, maintenance uh, shot, you know, damage problems, Long Chen was a place to go. It wasn't very far from Udorn, but it was a place to go. Anyway. The Ravens, the, the Ravens were stationary in T-28s, but before the Ravens, there was the, I have a picture of it here in a moment, the Pilatus Porter. It was an airplane built by, of all people, by the Swiss, <laughs> which we use in wartime, yeah. And it, it could, you know, anything a helicopter can do, a Pilatus Porter can do, but that I mean, really, it can take off in about 50 or 100 feet, and it can land in about 50 or 100 feet. And the butterflies, or the call sign butterflies, that's what they flew in. They were enlisted men. And as a, I just spoke to a butterfly two or three weeks ago. As he said, he said, when the brass in, in Saigon found out they had enlisted men up here, backing in airplane, airplanes, they changed it. And that's when the ravens started. So these guys precede the ravens. Butterfly 422 was, I don't know which way now, 
was on the east side of Laos, northern plain, basically Plainted Jars, PEJ. And uh, Butterfly 4-4 was on the, the west side, which are the other way around, which are where it was. But that's how they, where the call signs came from. There's a Pilatus Porter. Those are the ravens. Not going to talk about, those are the butterflies. Not going to talk about them anymore, but I think we're going to talk about reconnaissance in Southeast Asia as they used to be mentioned. And so we've done that. Okay. Due to technical difficulties, you're not going to see this. <laughs> well, but let me, tell you what, let me tell you what you're not going to see because you can't see it. And General Hudson, this is here in your museum this is right now. It's the only, and I do mean only, film of an RF-4C combat air refueling prior to going on a mission, and it's filmed by me. <laughs> I mean, it, you're right there. You're under the, the KC-135, the whole business, okay? It's here at the Air Force Museum. You can see it, or at least they have it. I guess you can see it. They certainly have it because I gave it to them. And it's the only film extant of that sort of activity. You want to know what it really looks like? Really coming in there behind a tanker and hooking up. This is the film for you. Okay. All right. So, as I said, unarmed, alone, and unafraid. Of course, that's not literally true. Sometimes there were little icicles <laughs> right in your heart, right? And I'm looking at faces going, heads going up and down. Yeah, we all know that. All right. Just to pay homage to where it needs to go, there were other airplanes, the RB-66. You know what I remember about the RB-66 when I was at Shaw, an old RB-66 driver said, show me a picture or whatever of, of an A-3. Or was it A-6? A-3. A3. And I said, well, he said, you know what that is, Taylor? No, sir, I don't know what that is. He says, that's the flying version of the B-66. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> One more thing that needs to be said about this is an RB, but let's talk just a second about the EB-66s. We in 101s and R-4Cs and blah, 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 blah. We like to talk about how we were the only ones that got sent up there to North Vietnam and faced all that stuff who were, we were unarmed. Didn't have, you know, we're, we're, we weren't the only ones. EB-66s went up there during, during the tough days, during when we were in 67, they were up there at least. I don't know when they came back, when they quit going up there and flew in what we called in the barrel, gave it a whole new meaning. Well, it did. Just south of them, they had the slam ring. Okay? To the north of them, they had the Chinese buffer zone. Not the Chinese border. Chinese buffer zone, 30 miles away from the Chinese border. And you know what the orders were? Don't turn left. That put them into the Chinese buffer zone. Turn right. That put them into slam ring. Those were the orders. No, I'm not making this up. My hat's off to the EB-66 folks. They had a back seat full of electronic warfare, electronic warfare officers, and that's an RB there. But the EB-66s, I think we need to say just one word about them, and we have. But they, they did a heck of a job. Lots jammed, lots of radars. Okay. The RB-57 was in Southeast Asia. Some of you may have read the book The Dune Pussy by Elaine Shepard. That's about RB-57 guys. I've flown to the Jaws of the Cat of Death. That's a, one of the chapters in my book. 101 Voodoo, 
we're going to talk about here in just a second. And then just so you can see another picture of it, there it is. And then here's a picture of the Pilatus Porter. <laughs> see that big long, that's all engine right there. Yeah, heck of an airplane, didn't you know? And that, okay. And then we'll talk about RF4C and night missions using these photo flash cartridges. Just real quick on a photo, photo, a photo flash cart, cartridge. We call them carts. They were used, of course, for night photography, and they're a big flash bulb. Depending on which model you were using, they, they created, a, one of them, created 110 million candle power. Or, if you're using the bigger model, they created 230 million candle power. You could read the New York Times by their light. Okay? In the daytime, we used the photo flash cartridges in a different way. We took took the white phosphorus out, put in chaff, which was tinfoil or something like that. And then when we, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but then when we needed to, to avoid SAMs or avoid SAM radar, more to the point, we used the photo flash cartridges with that chaff to come out and help us camouflage what we were doing. Okay? All right. So, some of you know these two names, Tony Weisgrubber and... Robert W. Pitt. Uh, those of you who are trained investigators will observe that somebody must have gotten a silver star out of this thing, and somebody did. Tony Weisgrubber did. Here's what happened, and we'll, I'll show you the, where they were. They took off from Udorn in a flight of two RF-101s. Their target was Kep. I watched a presentation by Colonel Broton from this stage right here, and he was from this stage. I wasn't watching it from this stage, but Colonel Broton was here, and he said that there was Kemp, around Kemp, there was, <laughs> there was an anti-aircraft gun over 18 feet. I'll accept that. I don't know if that's true, but I, Colonel Broton said it's good enough for me. And this is where Tony and Robert Pitt were going to go, and that's where they went. They came out over Venn. If you remember where that is, they flew up to just north of Haiphong, and they turned left. Now, stay with me. Their way of, what, what are they going to do? This is 5 October 1965. They're going to fly at 100 feet above the ground, maybe a little lower, but 100 feet above the ground, 600 knots. It's about 100 miles from Kelp to, I'm sorry, from uh, Haiphong to Harbor to Kelp, and they're going to uh, do that at 100 feet. So it takes them about, fly 100 miles, takes them about 10 minutes, 9 minutes, whatever it is. They're at 100 feet, here they go, and they come to these, <laughs> they come to these mountains, and they see, think how low they have to be. They see this North Vietnamese person standing there on the mountaintop. <laughs> And Robert Pitt says to Tony, that must be their early warning radar. <laughs> Don't laugh. They didn't laugh. <laughs> they didn't laugh. And you know what, what Tony says? Right after, we, right after we got past the mountain to the first paved road, you know what happened? They started, we started getting shot at. I mean, they were just shooting us up. Had a whole different meaning in those days. 
and that they were really shooting us. And in fact, Robert Pitt's airplane was hit and hit bad. Tony says that the fire was two airplane lengths long coming out of his airplane, left-hand side. Well, Robert aborts his mission and turns around and starts heading back toward the Gulf of Tonkin, which was safety because the U.S. Navy controlled the Gulf of Tonkin. Tony continues on, flies to Kelp. Has, they had, now he's got to get two targets. What they were going to do, this was, times were so hard back in those days that these two RF-101s are going to split up when they get close to the target area. And Robert, you go get one target, and Tony, I'll Tony, will go get the other target. Well, I can't do that anymore, so Tony goes and gets both targets, click, he click, turns around, comes back out, finds Robert Pitt. I'm not quite sure how he did that, out over the Gulf of Tonkin, finds him, and now they're going to head for, for Da Nang. And so, let me stop right there. Here's their map, their mission map. They're going to leave Udorn, up to just north of Haiphong. In they go, targets, targets, two targets, come back out. And then what happens then is they both fly down to Da Nang. Kelp being badly, his airplane, being badly wounded. And here's Udorn. Here's Venn that they coasted out over. Here's Haiphong Harbor. And then here's Haiphong Harbor. Here's Kelp. Right up there is the target. See the stream? That's where Tony was going to get the pictures. He does. He comes back out. They fly back down. Well, there's, okay, there's a better picture of the, of the bridge that he got at Kelp. Here's Kelp right here. Here's the bridge. They fly back out. And now this is south. Top of the map is south. Top of the picture is south. They fly from here down to Da Nang. Why do you do that? Look, Unorn is right here. Nakam Phnom, which is also an American base, is right here. Why would you fly from here to Da Nang? I'll tell you why. Because if you're all shot to heck and back, there's a chance that you, you, know, you might not make it. Who would ever think this, that an Air Force officer would think that? But you might not make it. And so if you don't make it, you'd much rather jump out in the Gulf of Tonkin, again, controlled by the U.S. Navy. And by the way, did you know there's one ancillary benefit to that? If you got picked, we were, I don't know if this is true, but we were told this. If you got picked up by the Navy, you got one of them leather Navy flat jackets. <laughs> Everybody wanted one. Everybody wanted Okay, so... And if you got shot down, or if you, or not that you got shot down, but if you didn't make it back to, to uh, here, to knock on Phnom say, you're, you're going to fly over bad guy territory. If you go down there, you're either a POW or you're dead. Not a good deal. So you take the longer way, and you go back, here, and they do. Well, the next thing they do is they say, by George, we don't have much gas. We don't have much gas at all. And so they call for tankers, for a tanker, and they talk a tanker in the country. Up, way up, a lot further north than they're supposed to. A whole lot further north than they're supposed to. And then guess what? Can't refuel. Why? Well, uh, Robert Pitt can't refuel. Why? Because he's lost all, so, many, so much hydraulics that his, his receptacle won't pop up. 
Tony is able to get on and get a little bit of gas, not much, because Robert Pitts run out of gas, and they only go to Denang. Robert Pitts says, <laughs> are, these instruments, are these gas gauges accurate? Well, yeah, I think they are. He says, well, mine's reading zero. <laughs> I'm reading zero. And Tony said, well, if, you, if your engines flame out, eject. Some good advice. <laughs> and so he goes into Denang, and Tony's above him, and he watches, and he, he lands. Now, remember, he doesn't have any hydraulic fluid, so he's got to blow the gear. I don't know how you get the gear down on a one-on-one. You blow it down, probably do. Blow it down some way, and then he didn't have any brakes because he didn't have any hydraulic fluid. Runs off the runway, and there's this big. <laughs> And Tony sees all that, and he says, oh, you poor guy. You know, you've made it all the way back. American base. No, you've landed, and now you're dead. Well, good news, folks. He wasn't dead. Made it through, made out of that. Tony flies back to Udorn over here. And guess what? He got the film, got the targets, got the pictures. Silver Star. Bingo. There is the 101 experience, not obviously a lot more, but we're to use that as the 101 experience in Southeast Asia. Really low, 100 feet, hit by ground fire. How many of you here, don't have to raise your hands, how many of you here have had that? Well, there's a lot of you. If you flew 101s in North Vietnam, that's probably what, you, before 1967, that's probably what, you, what happened to you. Something of, something of that magnitude, order of magnitude. Okay. Then we come to the longest run. This is about RF-4C. This is going high. Now, by night, this takes place in 1967. Okay. And what we could do then, by now, by 1967, we, meaning RF-4Cs and RF-101s, have equipment, electronic gear, that will fool the radar people. In our lore, Every radar site in North Vietnam was operated by Lieutenant Ching. Okay? And we had this gear that would fool Lieutenant Ching's radar. Here's how it did it. If you were in a 101, it said to Lieutenant Ching, here's this signal that says, I am an airplane. Please shoot me down. And of course, the, the low bidder who got you know got this thing said they can't re, they can't uh, resist it they'll they'll try to shoot him down he was right before they loved to try to shoot, <laughs> they tried to hit that you know that, that image that the 101 was giving them the key to it was that the image was not where the airplane was electronically they were altering the return so that when it went back to Lieutenant Ching they said I'm here when in reality I was here that's great. As long as the missile goes hits its target, if the missile misses its target a little bit and comes over here, whoops, <laughs> and, you know, tie goes to the missile. The 101 drivers saw some certain ethical deficiencies in this, which you'll understand when I talk about what we had in the RF-4C. And no one, I say no one, management didn't care about what deficiencies they saw. They told us that that's, that's what you've got. Would you just go fly your missions and quit bothering us about this? And they did. They did. 
Our Air Force C had a different deal. Our, our electronic countermeasures, we had a, a, a gizm box in the front seat and the back seat, but mostly it was in the back seat. And he went boom, 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 and when they started painting us with the radar, he'd go doot, 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 sounded like a rattlesnake. And then they had to, to, to fire the missile, they had to change frequencies. This was a good thing for us. And so the minute they changed frequencies, we knew that meant they were about to launch. And the cry, I see the cry, well, sometimes it was a cry. Then was to say on the air to your wingman, launch. What that meant was, I've got a launch on the box. Didn't mean a missile was on the way, it meant I've got a launch on the box. And then our ECM gear would tell us when that missile was actually fired. Okay? And by, and it had a, a little strobe thing would point to where the, the radar the strongest radar signal was coming from. So you could look down over here, over here, and say, ah, there ought to be a missile over there, and a lot of times there was. And you could say missile nine o'clock low, missile Four o'clock, three o'clock low, whatever it was. Normally it said in a voice much higher pitched than I just used. <laughs> and the key word, the key word was missile. Once you said missile, that meant I've got one in sight. I can see a missile. And then three o'clock or whatever it is. And, the, and then the, the, the way you, so when, when Lieutenant Ching went into that sequence, what you would do then, we started off at about 12, 14,000 feet. And we started at uh, VN 10, and I'm sorry, we started at Trey Hut. Right here, the, this is the 7th Air Force would task these. There was a railroad, the railroad runs, that's all they were interested in was the railroads in those days. Railroad runs from, from up here in China, the Chinese border, on the north side of the Red River, right down here to, well, it runs all the way to Haiphong. But in a victory at sea, not scored by Richard Rogers. The U.S. Navy had all of this from Hanoi uh, right here, up, up, all of this over here belonged to the Navy. So the Navy was responsible for reconnaissance, bombing, etc., all of that. Air Force didn't have to worry about it. So our mission ended here at, at the Paul Domir Bridge, right here, the Hanoi, the Hanoi Bridge. So we fly from Trey Hut, 12 minutes. Average speed about somewhere between 540 and 600 knots of ground speed. The idea was the minute the Lieutenant Ching, not when he first started painting you, but the minute he started going into his, where he was getting a solution, and he had to have three things to, to, to shoot at you. He had to have altitude, he had to have your azimuth, and he had to have your airspeed. So what we wanted to do then was we wanted to change something. So what we would do is this. When it got to where Lieutenant Ching started going through his firing sequence, we'd pop a little chaff. Remember I told you I had the chaff on? We'd pop a little chaff. That made his radar scope go <laughs> look like your TV does when the cable goes out. That's really. And so if you don't pay your cable bill, you kind of know how Lieutenant, Lieutenant Ching was in his life. And then what we would do is we would change two of those three things. We couldn't change the track. Unfortunately, the railroad never moved. So, well, so we changed the other two. We'd descend 1,000, 2,000 feet. And what that would do, of course, those of you who think about it, is when you go downhill, you go faster. I know it sounds basic. Well, duh. Well, yeah, but it, you do. And now you've changed two of Lieutenant Ching's firing solutions. 
So now he doesn't have a firing solution. And we just continue on. The next time you get all of that, chaff, down, chaff, down, etc. Sadly, you had to make a few turns. Red River doesn't run just straight. It turns and you had to make some turns. Anytime you turn, the ECM pods that were carried on the, they were externally mounted on the wing, the ECM pods were not very effective. So Lieutenant Gene got a good look at you anytime you turn. So you turn, roll out, now you chaff, down. So you pick up airspeed, you change your altitude, two more things have changed on Lieutenant, for Lieutenant Gene. When you got to Hanoi, right here, where the Red Star is, you made a hard right turn, and in about 50 or 60 miles, you're out of Samarang. At about another 100 miles, you're out of the MIG problem, and you can start breathing again. And it's, I'm telling you, I've done it with the stopwatch <laughs> almost to the minute. I mean, I'm not just a minute. I'm talking about almost like to the, to the five seconds. It's 12 minutes from right there to right there. That's just how long it takes. And, but that was already four C's, and, and the one, by the way, by now the 101s are going in high, because they can. They've got that, the, the ECM stuff. We don't have to do, they don't have to do, we don't have to do, like Tony Weisgarber and Robert Pitt had to do, going low 100 feet and try to beat them, because now we can go in higher and, and, and beat them that way, because we have the ECM gear. Okay? Alright. Now, here is Larry Faley. We're going to talk about his mission. Now, you notice one of my other things, there are two silver stars here. That's because Larry and Larry Flight had Larry Looney's in the back seat. They both got a silver star, unusual. Larry, where are you? And you can... There he is. Stand up, Larry. Thank you very much, Larry Faley. Larry and I with RAF Alkenberry together, and I'm, I'm not going to embarrass, I don't want to embarrass Larry, and I'm not going to say this too embarrassing, but I will tell you that I was green. <laughs> so another way to say that, I mean, I was green. Young guy, didn't have a lot of flying experience, practically none. I was in the backseat, I was pilot, backseat of the RAF-4, and so talking to guys like Larry, by the way, I did not know about this mission, but I knew that Larry had flown, had a lot of flying time, had a lot of experience, had flown RB-66s, had flown RF-4s. Guys like Larry were the kind of guys that guys like me talk to and find out, try to, you know, suck up their experience, just suck it right out of them. And Larry was one of the good guys in this sense. He let me do that. <laughs> Instead of blowing off this green, it's a gourd guy, I mean, he actually said things that made sense. Like, don't fly into flak traps. <laughs> You're going to see that in a minute. Larry, the thing is, I always remember, I, I tell you what, I've used this line for, since I heard it. In those days in the Air Force, you had to get five hours of nighttime every six months. Larry had been flying RF-4s out of Saigon for a year or whatever it was. And, of course, they had a, he had about 10 gazillion hours of nighttime. He would stump down the hall 
at, when we were night flying, and he would say, you know, if it just prorate my bark, 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 nighttime, I wouldn't have to do this tonight. <laughs> and I've always, I've always remembered that, and I'll tell you why. When I was in flying school, the instructor said, boy, flying at night is so wonderful, it's quiet, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's fine, 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 fine. Fooey. <laughs> Fooey. That guy had never, I'll tell you now, he had never flown a low-level night navigation mission in Europe, peacetime, no, no, he, let alone in Southeast Asia. Okay, enough of that. We'll move on here. Larry Faley, Silver Stars, here's what happened. And first I have to tell you about the bridge. Well, here it is right here. The bridge on the River Ma. You know it as the Dragon Jaw. Hong, Hong wrong, ham wrong, ham wrong. All right, let's talk about that for a minute. There was a bridge. It was built a long, long time ago. The guy that originally designed it, didn't build it, but designed it, was Eiffel, the same guy that did the Eiffel Tower. He's also the same guy that designed the Paul Mir Bridge over the Red River in Norway. And in 19, I think it's 47, I forget the exact year, Ho Chi Minh and his men, this becomes, this becomes important in a minute. Ho Chi Minh and his men destroyed that bridge. You know how they did it? They took two, uh, it's a railroad bridge, they took two railroad engines, loaded them with explosives, put them at each, up to the end of the bridge, and <laughs> you know what? They got it. It, went, it, was, it was gone. Stay with me. Well, in 1957 or sometime right in there, now Ho Chi Minh has won. They're back. They, re they rebuild the bridge. It's a steel bridge centered on that big concrete thing you saw it centered on. I'll show you a picture again in a second. It's uh, got abutments, concrete abutments, hills and all at either end. And it's a heck of a bridge made out of iron. And... By 1965, the Air Force decided we've got to get that bridge. You know, we're going to get them. So by 1966 is when it really starts. They start bombing the Air Force and the, 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 and the Navy start bombing the bridge. And they bomb it and they bomb it. And, they bomb it. <laughs> and guess what? It's still standing. It doesn't fall. They were hitting it with bullpups. Now, I don't know much about bullpups. I think they were about a 250-pound bomb. They flew them with a joystick. Took two passes. I mean, they carried two bullpups on an airplane, so that each plane had to make two passes to get rid of two bullpups. They're watching the bullpups hit the bridge. One guy said it was like shooting the BBs at a Sherman tank. General McConnell, the chief of staff of the Air Force, was said to be hopping mad. I bet that wasn't the words that General McConnell used. And he just could not understand why this is these, <laughs> these wonderful F-105s and F-100s and all these other airplanes the Navy had couldn't knock down this bridge. Stay with me. Do you know what somebody told him? And I guess he bought it. I just love this. I wish I'd thought of it. Somebody said, stood tall. 
said, General, that bridge has been over-engineered. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wouldn't lie to you. Right hand of God. It's true. true. Okay. So, what are we going to Well, it looks like you're right hand to you, doesn't it? When you're, okay. So, <laughs> okay. So, we got this bridge. And at last, the Air Force says, Aha! We can fix this. And so they develop a mass, um, some kind of mass magnet bomb. It sounds like something you'd get out of a, by sitting in the top of a cereal box. It weighed 5,000 pounds. It was eight feet in diameter, two and one half feet thick. They were going to carry it on a Pilatus Porter. No, that's not true. <laughs> no, I made that up. <laughs> no, they weren't. They were going to carry it on a C. I don't think they could carry it. A C-130. I mean, I bet something that big is nothing else to carry it. It's a C-130. So they trained a couple of C-130 crews at Eglin Air Force Base. They send them to Southeast Asia. They get them up to Da Nang. They load them up with five of these things apiece. On the night of May 30th, 1966, the 130s blast off, or one of them, blasts off from Demang and flies over here, drops this contraption, I guess dropped all five of them probably, and flew in. That's where we pick up the story. Here's the bridge. Remember I told you to sit on that center thing? By the way, this picture see is taken in 1972. Here's the end of the story. Yeah, we eventually get it. We didn't get it on May 30th, 1966, so no, no. Okay. Here's Larry's map. To go get the bridge. Here is, well, here's the bridge right here at San Juan. And here's this little point out here. And 322 degrees, 540 knots. They're going to go in at 2,000 feet. That's what they needed to do. Night. This is the early morning hours of May the 31st. Night. Dark. Larry and Larry flight. They drop down. They come in. And you see that little island right there? That's a good radar return because it's a land water contrast. See that little the bend in the river here? Got the, 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 uh, the right turn. Good, good land water contrast. Been in the river here, good land and water contrast. None of which you need. You know why? You got this big piece of iron. Huge, big piece of iron. <laughs> a nav guy on his first nav mission could not have been, in, at training school at Mather, could not have been given an easier target as far as the radar acquisition. I mean, that, you're looking at a rice field. And a huge, big radar return. So now, think about it for a second. What do you, which one is the bridge? Well, it probably is that big radar return up there. And that's what they went for. Okay? Bam, bam. And here we go. They start dropping their carts, about, their photo cartridges are going to drop five of them. Let me just say this now, Larry. I asked Larry about this. I said, Larry, how many carts did you drop? Five? He said, well, actually, he said, we dropped six. He said, Larry, back to you, punched off an extra one. 
<laughs> he said, if I could have stopped the airplane and gotten out, I would have walked back there and choked him. <laughs> I would have walked back there and choked him. Well, sure, he would I'm going to show you why. Here, we're gonna, we're, this story ain't over yet. Okay. But anyway, five carts, well, six. And now, remember this, see this right here? That's the bridge. Now, in this now incarnation, it's not, not to what was there then. See this mountain here, a hill, or what do you want to call that? That was there then, there now. All right. Back we go. Out here over the Gulf of Tonkin, Larry Faley, boy aircraft commander, at night, in the weather, makes two faint, F-E-I-N-T, not F-A-I-N-T, F-E-I-N-T. That means for those of you who didn't graduate from Wright State, that means that Larry was trying to trick them. And he made two faint turns of over 60 degrees of bank at night over water. Now, for many of you, you know, in, in weather, many of you know what that means. For those of you who don't, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. But let me just tell you right now, the standard Air Force instrument flying business is, in weather, 15 degrees of bank is, is what you use. 30 degrees is, 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 is things that just turn so bad to poo-poos, you've got to use a lot of bank. 30 degrees would be it. That's it. Uh-uh. Night weather, six, over 60 degrees of bank. You ever flown to Vietnam at night? It's like an inside of an inkwell. I'm, we're talking black. I mean black. 60 degrees of bank. Bonk, bonk. Gets on course. And I'll tell you, I wasn't there. I wasn't in this airplane. But I will tell you now, Larry Lunny, that backseater, is, is fascinating the whole time. You're too, a little too high. You're a little too low. Probably, he probably was, he was a little too low because he didn't get the bullets. And you want to go faster and faster. No, slow down. You piece of, you know. And anyway, because you gotta get, if you're going to get this bridge, you've got to be precise. And you've only got five chances. Well, six. Okay. So here we are. Coming in. Boom, 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 boom. And get to here. Remember that, 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 right here, it's right here. Remember this hill? Guess what Larry does then after they get past the bridge? Make the hard left turn. This, that's here, that's toward this hill right here. Uh-huh. Why would you do that? I'm going to show you why. Okay, first we'll start here. This is straight and level. That's what it looks like. That's your, that's your cockpit. We're at San Juan. There's the bridge right up there. Okay? We're at San Juan. That's straight and level. See? Nice. That's 60 degrees of bank as you're over the Gulf of Tonkin. It's a left-hand turn. That's what 60 degrees of bank looks like. Try that at night sometime in weather. Don't. Don't try that at night sometime. Don't. Here's 100 degrees of bank. That's what Larry did. Over here, you remember the hill? 100 degrees of bank. So he said, 100 degrees of bank. That's what 100 degrees of bank looks like. Why would you do that? Why would you do At night, we're talking about dark. It's night. Why? I'll tell you why. Because see this, how nice this looks? You do it because of this. 
That's why. Oh, yeah. See that right there? That's Lieutenant Chang working. Yeah. Now, this is 1966. He didn't, we didn't have all that wonderful electronic stuff then, except we did. And you'll have to talk to Larry. You can talk to Larry about this. I haven't talked to him. I don't know. I haven't asked this question. For some reason, in the infinite wisdom, the Air Force had airplanes at, at Tonsonute, RF-4Cs at Tonsonute, with this wonderful electronic countermeasure stuff on it. But uh, Larry and Larry Flight didn't get one of those airplanes. No. They got one without it. I don't know why, but they did. Okay. That's why you start making 60 degrees of bank and making those faint turns, because you don't want people to know you're coming. They, Larry and Larry say in their account of it that they, they were looking at the bridge. They knew they were right on course, on target. Life is, that part of life is good. And so they looked, the, the, the tracers are coming up. And so it looked like it was a teepee with the flap open. Think about that for a minute. Looked like a teepee with the flap open, and it looked like the tracers were popping out, but somewhere between four and six thousand feet. And they're at two thousand. That's not so bad. Two hundred. Well, okay, they were at two hundred. Wait a minute. Whose story is this? Two hundred feet. They were at two hundred feet, and they could see the tracers coming up. Okay, there's a slam right here. Here's the bridge again. More slams, tracers, things. Bridge again. See that slam right there? See? He's right down here. That's a, this is a blow-up right there. There he is right there. But this is a blow-up. There's a slam coming at him. Folks, when that sort of stuff is going on, do you make a 100-degree bank turn toward a mountain? Sure you do. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I, I ain't hit the mountain yet. <laughs> the slam may get me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go for it. Heck with the mountain. Sure. Slams. See them? Over here. And then here's the end of it. Okay. Now, this is May 31st, 1966. This is a composite of the pictures that Larry and Larry took. What do we have here? See what it says? A serviceable bridge. We have a train. We have rolling stock down here. See that net right up there? You wonder why they didn't the, the the bridge didn't fall? The wonderful bomb that we got was sent in in our box tops couldn't get there because we had this wonderful bomb, uh, wonderful net up there. They're saying possible tracers. That's a slam to me. That might be a tracer. And then just I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. All right. That ain't north. <laughs> no, that's about west. <laughs> but it ain't north. Okay? All right. That was the night of May 31st, 1966. Two silver stars out of that mission. Let me tell you one thing why that is so significant. A couple of reasons. 
One reason is, well, one reason is, because I won't work. Okay. One reason is because very rarely, very rarely, did the backseater get a an award that would be equal to the front seaters. The front seater got a silver star. The backseater got something not wasn't silver star, etc. For both of them to get a silver star tells you what a what a wonderful job this crew did. I brought back the pictures. I'll finish up this story in two ways. Way number one is the next night, well, let's say the night of May 31st, you know, this is early morning hours. We went on the next night. The other C-130 goes, and they have an F-4 doing some diversionary tactics down a few miles south of the Fanois, a few miles south. And that F-4 sees an enormous fireball. The C-130 is never heard from again. It's gone. And a friend of mine and Larry's was scheduled to fly the, the recognition for that night. They never went. Didn't have to. C-130 is gone. Just there anymore. Never found it. They finally did recover some bodies. You were talking about years later, but they finally did recover some bodies. Okay. Ill wind that blows no good. Out of this, because remember I said General McConnell was hopping mad? Out of this came things like the fighter weapons school and the, the change in Air Force tactics about the fact that we needed F-15s. <laughs> you know, the 105... The 105 are getting shot down by MiGs. Shouldn't have happened. And then you know they figured it out today. Maybe we need something that's a little bit different airplane. And so some some good things came out of that. By the way, just as an aside, I will tell you that uh, James Stockdale got shot down trying to bomb bombing this bridge. Robinson Reisner, y'all remember that name? Robbie Reisner shot down trying to. Bomb this group. I mean, they were bombing it, but trying, trying to knock it out. They never knocked it out. There were a lot of others. They were shot down. Over a hundred pilots were shot down. <laughs> Try to bomb this bridge down. Never got it done. Finally, in 1972, they had better missiles, better bombs, and they got it. And you know what? <laughs> I love this. The Air Force was not, I mean, I don't know if you, it was not pleased, they, they, they knocked it out, and then they said, my George, we're going to really knock it out, and they bombed it like you see it in the first picture I showed you when it's all mangled. That was, they finally said, that's it, we quit, we've got it. I don't know how many of you have read the book, in Flanders Fields, it's from World War One. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. Well, not unless you, you, you want to be unhappy. Folks, it hadn't changed. Flanders Fields is 1917, roughly. And this is 1965, 66 through 1972. It's the same book. It's the same bloody book. Different airplane, you know, different players. Okay. Moving on. That's where we are. 
That's reconnaissance in Southeast Asia. We had 101s that went low in the daytime. We had 101s that went low, well, later went high at, in the daytime. We had F4s that went high in the daytime and could go low. Most of them went high because we had the electronic gear. And we had RF4s that would go low at night. Most of the RF, I say, let me rechange that, rephrase that. The first RF4C has got the Saigon, Tansanut, in on October 31st, 1965. Landed on Halloween night, or Halloween, 1965. And for the first couple of three years, through 1967 at least, they were flying almost all night sorties. Almost all their sorties were at night. And they were flying area covers using infrared sensors, and they were flying photo flash missions. That later changed. They started flying some day missions. But RF-4s did an awful lot of night flying. RF-101s did an awful lot of day flying, and then RF-4s did high flying. And so that, that's, that's reconnaissance. And then the other, those that we talked about, the RB-66s, RB-57s, the butterflies, all did reconnaissance uh, in, in Southeast Asia during that time. Can I? Yes, I can. Can I tell you a real quick story about <laughs> I love this. About a butterfly guy and how reconnaissance has changed over just in a few years. He was stationed at Longchen. At night they would have they would go to Vang Pao. Now, y'all know who Vang Pao is? Vang Pao was the commander of the Laotians, the Hmong people, and uh, he eventually was relocated to the United States and, and died, I don't know, November, December of last year, just recently. Died and uh, Vang Pao, I mean, he's a survivor. Boy, what a survivor. Anyway, they'd go to Vang Pao's quarters, and Vang Pao would tell them, you know, I think there's some activity over at, and he would tell them where, in, in, in the Plain de Jars, and he would have there this little Hmong guy, and said, now, come on here, is going to go with you tomorrow, and he'll show you where it is. Okay. So they'd go get in the platter's quarter, and they'd go, well, the Hmong guy didn't speak English. <laughs> well, do you think that's a problem? No. Hmong guy would take Because he could point the pilots, you know, the, the, our, our, the butterfly guy, and the pilot of the plane, who was a CIA guy, he could, or America at least, he could point them, he could get them to the site, but now you've got to tell the F-105s, which is what they were using most of the men, or the Navy people, which they were also using, what, you know, not just hit my smoke, but where my, kind of where my smoke's going to be. They didn't have smoke on the Pilatus Porter. And the guy said, okay, the Hmong guy, okay. He, he took a grease pencil, I'm not making this up, and he draw what he was looking at on the ground on the canopy. Oh, yeah. And then he, <laughs> what he wanted them to hit, you know, right there. Here's the road. Right there. And they'd say, okay, 105s, see the road? Yeah, we see the road. Okay, go 10 meters north of the road, one meter west. Okay. Then they'd go back and land. They'd meet up with Vang Powell. The little Hmong guy would be there with them. And uh, Vang Powell would say, okay, he's going to go and check and see what the bomb damage is. And he would disappear. And then he'd come back. And the next day they'd be up, flying, you know. And they'd say to the 105s or the navies or whoever, they'd say, remember that target yesterday? Yeah, we remember that. Would you like to know what your bomb damage is? <laughs> yeah, 
Well, you got two trucks, one road park, one, you know what it is. Oh, okay, I, thank you. How did y'all know that? <laughs> well, the way they do it is because it's a little Amon guy drawing stuff with a grease pencil on the canopy of their airplane. Yeah, that's the way it started off. We, we're better now, and that's why I wanted to show you this picture right here. This is this is a predator. There's, now, there's not a there's. I, I thought I saw a predator today in the in the uh, Air Force Museum. It turned out to be a pussy cat. Oh no, no, that's a different deal. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I saw uh, I saw what I thought was a predator, but I was told no, that's not a predator. That's something that follows on with the predator, and it carries bombs and weapons and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, this right here is a predator, and it can do the reconnaissance job that Larry Faley and all of you that flew these things did. And there's nobody in it. And they fly it from outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. Is life good or what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I watched one of the tapes from previous, or I watched some of the presentations of previous presenters. One of the guys that stood here and presented was uh, Scott. Oh, the flight of the intruder, whatever his name is. Scott something. Uh, and he, he said, you know, he says, I think the future of this thing is going to be, we're not going to have to be flying over there. He flew uh, A-6s. He says, we're not going to be flying over there dropping stuff anymore. He says, we'll, we'll probably have remote planes. This was 20 years ago. Scott, you're right. We got them. We got them. We're dropping bombs by guys in Las Vegas. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Hey, life is good. Okay. One last thing. So, that's reconnaissance in Southeast Asia. At least the time I was there. I was there for 67. I was there at 70. Uh, to my observation, it didn't change much between 67 and 70. I'm sure it changed after. I know it changed from before. If you want to know more about it, if you'd like to know more, I'm telling you, more than anybody would want to know about times, you can go to this website, Alone, Unarmed, and Unafraid, and there's all kinds of stuff on there, uh, including, by the way, well, the, the refueling business is on, on the website as well. We want to see what a real refueling looks like from the pilot standpoint, filmed by me. You can go, go there and you can look at it. It takes it's about a minute and a half. All right. So, thank you very much for your attention. If there are questions, now is the hour. <laughs>